Throughout this series, we have investigated numerous religious and mystical traditions, including Christianity, astrology, and alchemy. Though we are reaching the end of this book, we still have one religious tradition that we have left to investigate, Gnosticism. Once again, I will be simplifying the nature of the topic for the sake of time and clarity with a focus on how the topic relates back to Jung's concepts. Gnosticism emerged in the first century AD. It was a religious system that was rooted in Christianity, but differed in many respects. The most important difference between the Gnostics and regular Christians were the nature of their religious books. In Christianity, the holy books in the New Testament had a traceable history, from Jesus, to his disciples, to apostles, and other various locations. In regards to the Gnostics, their books didn't have this level of verification, but they weren't bothered by this. Instead of basing their entire religion around orthodox teachings, they emphasized personal spiritual knowledge. Edward Edinger of the Ion Lectures explains, quote, Jung speaks of the Gnostics as really the original psychologists. They took the imagery of scripture and myth empirically, not dogmatically, and used it to exemplify their own themes, which are basically psychological themes. In other words, they tried to marry the core truths of Christianity with psychological experience. Obviously, you can see why the Gnostics were of particular interest to Jung. For the first part of this chapter, Jung refers to a book titled Elenkos, also known as The Refutation of All Heresies. This book was written by St. Hippolytus, a Christian Roman presbyter. His intention with this book was to attack the quote-unquote heresies of the Gnostic tradition. His attacks, along with those of other Christians, were largely successful, as most Gnostic material from that period has been destroyed. Hippolytus's book is one of the few texts on the Gnostics that remain from that period. Ironically, Jung will try to present some of the Gnostic teachings laid out in the Elenkos as psychologically valid, thereby nullifying Hippolytus's original attacks. Jung cites three specific images from the Elenkos. Before I detail the nature of these images, I would ask that all of you think back to our discussion of the magnet and the iron in chapters 10 and 11, and how that parallels the attraction between the self and the ego. The images that follow originate from an ancient Gnostic sect known as the Gnosens. The first image is known as the Paradise Quaternio. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis, there was a paradise known as the Garden of Eden, of which I'm sure most of you are well aware. In Eden, there were four rivers, the Pishon, even though it's written here as Fison, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. The Nasens taught that these four rivers correspond to the human eye, the ear, the sense of smell, and the mouth. The mouth, which is synonymous with the Euphrates, had special properties compared to the other three senses. The mouth is where prayers go out and food goes in. A symbiotic relationship which reflects that of the ego and the self. Much like one prays to Jesus for spiritual nourishment, the ego pays attention to the guidance of the self. The water of the Euphrates River also had special properties. Jung equated it to a concept known in alchemy as the aqua doctrinae, 
The Aquaductrine is much like the Sal Sapiente, which we discussed in Chapter 11, the material that is extracted from an organic magnet and used to draw the Echinaeus remora to the surface. Except, unlike the Sal Sapiente, which is unique to the magnet that it is drawn from, the Aquaductrine pervades all things. It is the stuff of life. I think it can be aptly understood as the blood of God. In Jesus' case, if one were to extract his sal sapiente, one would find the aqua doctrine. This is the water that came out of Jesus' side when he was pierced with a lance in John 19. The aqua doctrine came out of Jesus because the self, which Jesus symbolizes, attracts all living beings, and not just that which is particular to it. This is likely because Jesus, like the self, is the highest state inferring that they contain all that is needed. Where the flower attracts the bee because it contains pollen and nectar, Jesus attracts all humans because he possesses all which humans need, at least on the spiritual level. The water that went out of the garden through the Euphrates perfected every nature in its individuality, just as Jesus perfects every individual. We all have a portion of the aqua doctrine within us, and it is that portion that is attracted to the source from which it came, that being God. The second image is known as the signs of the Father. It bears a striking resemblance to the Euphrates River metaphor, except in this case, it is a serpent. If the magnetic connection between the ego and the self was generated by the aqua doctrine, it is generated by the serpent in the second image. The serpent is the magnet that draws to itself those parts or substances in man that are of divine origin. Those would be the signs of the Father, or as we just said, the Aqua Doctrine, and carries them back to their heavenly birthplace. The serpent functions in much the same way that the Jungian self does. The more that the ego follows the guidance of the self, like the man follows the guidance of the serpent, the faster they will arrive to heaven. What is interesting about this image is that the serpent is equated with the quote-unquote sun, or Jesus. This equation was inspired by John 3.14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This might seem odd to many people, especially Christians, because the serpent is often equated with Satan. There might be two reasons for this. This might be another example of the unconscious mind revealing the true nature of the God image, being both good and evil. It also might have something to do with Jesus' symbolism as a fish. Just as a fish rises from the unknown depths, a serpent comes mysteriously out of the darkness. This of course reflects the nature of the unconscious where a potentially frightening or redeeming content might appear out of nowhere. In this case, the redeeming content that appears out of the unconscious is the Jungian self. This might also be why the Gnosins worshipped a serpent as their main god, but we will discuss that later. The third image is known as the Ray of Light. In this image, a ray of light comes down from the light region above and gets all mixed up in the dark waters. After this happens, the Logos descends as a dividing sword and separates the mingled mixture. Then the rays of light which have been all mixed up in the dark waters separate themselves and are attracted, like iron filings, to the Logos, to their proper place. For the third time 
in the series, we see a reference to the splitting of the Ouroboric state, discussed in both chapter 9 and 11. The Godhead, containing both light and darkness in one mixture, splits into two, and between these two opposites lies all of creation. The Logos, which serves as the dividing sword, is very like the Aqua Doctrine. Just like a human is drawn to the Aqua Doctrine to find his or her fulfillment, the content of that original light and dark mixture hastens to the Logos more quickly than iron flies to a magnet. After that hastening, the Logos determines what the content's proper place in the universe is. It is both the Logos and that miraculous water, the aquadoctrine, from which the olive draws its oil, and the grape, the wine. It is that thing that gives us purpose, that guides us, that makes us whole. The Euphrates, the serpent, and the Logos are cited by Jung because they all emerge from the same source, the one that existed at the beginning of time. While that source is obviously God, the Gnostic images paint a possible picture of the Christian God that is quite frightening. In the Euphrates image, the water is the source of all things, a shapeless essence that nonetheless pervades all creation. In the serpent image, the source from which the serpent emerges is a source that is substanceless, but yet produces all substances. In the Logos image, all of creation is bound together in a mixture of light and darkness, a picture that reflects the nature of not only the self, but also the unconscious. The source, the god which Jung and the Gnostics are trying to illustrate, is the unconscious. What that implicates is that the Christian god, which the Gnostics assimilated, is an unconscious god. This harkens back to what we discussed in chapter 5 when the god of Exodus forced his adherents to paint lamb's blood on their doorposts to stave off God's wrath. If the destroying aspect of God cannot discriminate between the righteous and the wicked without this sacrifice, this suggests that some aspect of God, if not all of him, is unconscious. Let us not forget that when God created human beings initially, he saw what miserable unconscious creatures we were, so miserable that humankind required a flood to reset what God had originally created. As well, if human beings are made in the image of God, it makes sense that we too have some degree of unconsciousness built into us. One theologian that Jung cites frequently in Ion is Meister Eckhart, a German theologian from the 13th century. In regards to how one should love God, Eckhart says the following, quote, Love him as he is, a not-God, a not-spirit, a not-person, a not-image as a sheer, pure, clear one, which he is, sundered from all secondness. And in this one, let us sink eternally, from nothing to nothing. So help us God. Amen. When Eckhart says we should sink into the one, this can be interpreted psychologically. Let us assume that the god of the Gnostics, and maybe the Christians, is an unconscious god. Let us assume that the unconscious god is synonymous with the ego's unconscious. What happens when the ego immerses itself in the unconscious and integrates all unconscious contents? It becomes indistinguishable from the self, from God. That is the one. There are several names given to the source which produced the water, the serpent, and the logos. 
Some of these names include the Demiurge, the First Man, and the New, or Light. One name which will become important for the remainder of the book is Anthropos, but we will address that more later. For the Nasens, their central deity was the serpent we discussed in The Signs of the Father. It is the visible form that came from the Demiurge, a creature which they appropriately called Nas. Nas pervades everything, and contains within himself the beauty of all things. It is the aqua doctrine that permeates and originates all things, just as the unconscious pervades all things, including the human mind. Though the Nasans had temples set up to worship many gods, there was always an underlying assumption that Nas preceded all of them. Nas was the primordial stuff that is the essence of divinity. He was the numenosum that lies behind all religious phenomena. Putting it simply, Nas might have been one of the first attempts in human history to acknowledge and give form to the unconscious. However, even with the image of Nas, one fails to take the meaning behind such images as the Aqua Doctrine, the Logos, and the like, and include them inside one image. This is because there is no single possible way one can give form to the unconscious. It is a union of all opposites, of all possible images. The nature of God is, as Meister Eckhart would say, of forms formless of becoming becomingless, of beings beingless, of things thingless. This is what makes both God and the unconscious the same. This is what gives them the quality of being a sheer, pure, clear one. Jung lists Gnostic symbols because the nature of the unconscious, or of God, is so comprehensive and so difficult to visualize in itself that a great many different expressions are required in order to bring out its various aspects. There is one other name given to this source which permeates everything, the universal ground. Where the Paradise Quaternio described the source as water, the signs of the Father with the serpent, and the ray of light with the Logos, the universal ground tries to give a more accurate picture of the source and, by extension, the unconscious. Quote, For the Nasens, the universal ground is the original man, Adam, and knowledge of him is regarded as the beginning of perfection and the bridge to knowledge of God. He is male slash female. From him come father and mother. He consists of three parts, the rational, the psychic, and the earthly. These three came down together into one man, Jesus, and these three men spoke together, each of them from his own substance to his own, i.e. from the rational to the rational, etc. His soul is of three parts, and yet one, a trinity. Hippolytus describes the universal ground as the blessed nature at once hidden and revealed, of everything that has come to be, and will be, the kingdom of heaven which is to be sought within man. If this ground can be found within, and contains everything that we are now and everything we could be, I do not see how this can be any different from Jung's conception of the self.